Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. I don't think my next line will surprise you, but I'm joined by the serial killer whisperer, Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. I always love the joy that you have in your voice when you introduce me. It is a joy. I mean, people. some people find it very weird that we are happy talking about serial killers. Um, a lot of that is just happy being able to talk to one of my best Each friends other. in the world. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think that's what it is. <laughs> we we both sort of count down until this moment every week where mm. we just get to sort of be together, be the people that we've always been, not always agree, but mm-hmm. we always have fun. It's funny, someone reached out to me uh, last week and said, oh, I love it when you, Amanda, you and Amanda argue, and I thought, I do too. It feels like home. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And we've had some blueies over the year, that's for sure. But I think it, it, it all comes from love. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. And you you know you're close with people when you actually can really argue with them, you know, and you're not worried about not being friends anymore. So oh, that's yeah. probably where we are. And this week, Amanda, we're covering a very well-known case. I know we're doing Ted Kaczynski. So um, for all of those that are keen for this case, I know that just I think last week Netflix brought out a in in his own words on Ted Kaczynski. We haven't used that for this because, you know, that's just sort of regurgitating. So we're going through some other bits and pieces from his case. And I, I'm just really excited to actually do something different in the serial killer world. Excellent. Well, look, in what is a first for us, there's not actually any major serial killer news around this week. <laughs> So we're going to do something a bit different where we would usually have the news section. We're going to look into the perception of a serial killer. And Netflix has launched a show called 100 Humans, which does a series of experiments on, well, 100 humans. One part caught my eye, though, because it comes back to something we've talked a lot about on this show, and that's why people are always surprised by the, and I quote, normal look of a serial killer. In the first episode of 100 Humans, a test is done to see whether good-looking people get lighter sentences. To begin, we've divided up our humans into two groups of 50. Group A will see one set of mugshots, and Group B will see an entirely different set, but the crimes will be exactly the same. This is our humans' chance to play judge and jury, but we want to know how sympathetic they'll be 
if the criminal isn't too bad on the eyes. What we're doing is conducting a survey on criminal justice. Crime, punishment, what does it take to pay back society for certain offenses? And so what we did is we went and conducted interviews, we took photos at a few different correctional facilities, and we got their stories. Now, these were all people who were found guilty of their crimes, and your job today is to act as a judge, to determine what length of sentence is appropriate in prison for the particular offense, okay? Now, hopefully this is making sense. What they're doing is going through a list of crimes, but each group will see a different photo. In one group, the crimes will match a good-looking person, and in the second group, the exact crimes will match a, well, not-so-good-looking person. Have a listen to how the first case plays out. So this is Sarah. Sarah was convicted of manslaughter for leaving her one-year-old child in a car while she drank uh, in the afternoon in a bar. The outside temperature that day happened to be 98 degrees, so unfortunately the child did pass away. The recommended sentence for her is between 7 years to 15 years. Okay, manslaughter is a serious crime. Is this guilty criminal's attractiveness going to get her more sympathy than her counterpart? Let's hear the judgment on the less good-looking criminal first. I gave her uh, 30 years. Someone like that needs to be put away for a long time. I gave her 20 years. Okay. I think that you should know better. It's not an accident. So you heard the arguments for the ugly criminal. Now listen to the comments for the good-looking criminal who has exactly the same rap sheet. I gave her seven years because I think she's going to beat up herself for the rest of her life. She's got to live with that pain for the rest of her life. That in itself is, you know, is worse than even the time that she serves. And when the sentences were tallied, the ugly criminal was given 33 years in jail, whilst the good-looking criminal was given just 17 years. In another case of a drug dealer who was making meth, the ugly photo was given 13 years behind bars, but the good-looking photo was given just eight years. When these groups were told about a burglar who robbed over 30 homes, the less attractive photo was given six years jail and the better-looking criminal just three years. Amanda, what does this say about the way we judge people? I mean, it just proves all of these points. There was a, a study done a few years ago, probably a decade ago now, where a, a group of uh, criminology students were sitting in a lecture theatre. They had a burglar run in, grab the lecturer's handbag and run out. Now, when they were asked to describe what the burglar looked like, everyone made him ugly. Because people ah. want criminals to be ugly. Someone said, you know, oh, we had a shaved head. Someone, oh, he, he, he was unshaven. He had a scar. His face was crooked. We want our killers, we want our, our criminals to be hideous. We want them to look like um, Henry Lee Lucas. We don't want them to look like, well, Ted Bundy. You know, I don't think he's attractive, but a lot of people do. You know, we... we he's certainly more attractive than other serial killers. Well, especially Henry Lee Lucas, <laughs> that basically had one eye and was pretty wonky. But that's um, the perception of a killer. You know, yeah, we often think yeah. we can spot a pedophile or a killer, but really our perceptions... But this is proof where our perceptions are completely wrong, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see lot, lots of cases like um, the Gannon Storch case that I've I've been following for weeks now. Um, the stepmom has been arrested for the case and everyone's now coming up, oh, you know, she's hideous and she's horrible and she's ugly and all these words are coming out, whereas before it was like, oh, she was a victim, poor mum, she tried her hardest, you know, and it's amazing. We instantly go to that... 
um, that look of people that we want to say, oh, yeah, they have evil eyes. You know, when when Kathleen Folbeek is always in front of, of the camera when she's going to court and everything, people say how hideous she is. And I say to her, why don't you have any facial expressions when you're in front of the camera? She goes, I'm not allowed to because any sort of wink or blink or something, they will play up, they will blow up into a massive great big photo and pinpoint it. She goes, so I have to have this stern look. And she and so everyone thinks that she's cruel and hard, whereas in fact she's been told to do I think they're playing that this. wrong. I think if she, rather than stern, if she looked sympathetic, it would no. actually play much better to her. Well, you can't sort of look sympathetic when you're trying to rush from a prison van to a courthouse. You know, it's it's very hard, you know, and she goes... She'll, she'll be talking to the um, the prison officers and things like that and, and they, you know, will, will have jokes and stuff but they have to make sure it's not caught on camera. When when Fred West was arrested, there's a photo and I actually own the original of it. That's a shameless plug for the museum again. Um, <laughs> there's a photo of him with the guards and they're all laughing and joking and everyone said how disgusting it was that they were treated like human beings. You know, we want these people to be monsters. We want them to have the scar on the face and, you know, the bushy moustache mm. and the cape and the and, and the cane and we really want these ugly people but they're not so you know if you're going to court and you might go to jail you really have to look good and this is why we often see criminals turn up in court in a nice suit you know hair shaven tattoos covered and everything because it does make an impression and it will get them a better judgment if you're famous you won't go to jail look at oj simpson mm, mm. you know the more we love well people, the glove the less did not fit they, they had to acquit amanda oh my god oh my god <laughs> <laughs> look something else we're going to do which is a bit new this week we're going to answer a listener's question michelle posed this question on our facebook group i'm noticing more of a trend with true crime docos which are really insightful of course but is it a worrying trend it makes me wonder if more serial killers will want to kill more and risk more to eventually want to be caught so that they can become infamous and immortalised through TV. I wonder if what is trending now through society creates a different kind of killer. We all know that many killers like the letters and fans in jail already. Will their bargains change because they definitely don't want to go to trial or the death penalty? Will more of them be willing to share where the dead bodies are to stay off death row? Will living a life of being in prison seem more glamorous to them than their real lives? What do you think, Amanda? There's a lot to unpack there, mm, and I'm a so lot. glad that we've done this here. So um, we are seeing this this cult of personality with serial killers, and it started in, in the 70s and 80s, which is actually referred to as the golden age, with people like Son of Sam and Ted Bundy and all of those that sort of um, enjoyed that notoriety, enjoyed that ability to sort of have these young women around them. I mean, Charles Manson, you know, while he was in court, the girls were outside chanting. And it it, it become not like a rock star, but definitely a rock star. You know, it's mm. it's it's that fame. I mean, um, those that are old enough will remember Emilio Estevez in Young Guns. He would aim a gun at his victim and said, I'll make you famous. Yes. You know, and, and so basically these victims sometimes become, well, they live forever because people like us talk about them. I mean, we talk about the Jack the Ripper victims, 
incessantly in some groups, you know, and, and had they not been killed by this killer... They would have been forgotten they, to history. They would have been nobody, yeah. So so there is this, as I said, a cult of personality and um, we do feed it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, That's that that in in the press will remain forever. Um, serial killers are currently big business again, though I really do believe that we're getting to a point of such saturation that it will implode again. It mm. did about... 15, 20 years ago, it sort of died down. I think we're at that crux now where it's about to go, okay, that's enough. You know, there's only so much talking we can do. Please keep listening. <laughs> yes. sorry, at least, At least our podcast provides something a bit different. We go beyond the different. sensationalism, yeah. I, I, I'd like mm. to think anyway. Yeah, and, I mean, further to that, I mean, someone else asked a question this week, like why do we talk about these certain killers? And it's because there is so much out there and a lot of it is regurgitated and mm. it keeps them in in the public's eye. You know, we're easy to say Gacy, Bundy, Dharma, you know, and they just sort of get rolled off the tongue instantly every single time. But if I was to say someone like Fletcher or Butler, people go, who? Yeah. You know, and there is, as I said, my, my list is um, at 3,200 and something currently and there's a lot more serial killers I need to find and they are harder to find. People like Holmes, even back then, he was almost the original pin-up serial killer. The amount of copy space that he had in newspapers across the world was huge and he played it. He was one of the first to play the press. He would um, write these long columns that they would print. You know, we're about to see that Ted Kaczynski does the exact same thing, you know, 100 years later. It's something that they they need and they need Mm. that notoriety. They need it to be fed. And, you know, there's people like uh, Ivan, Um, he would hate the press. He would say, you know, how dare they talk about me and everything. But when we didn't talk about him, he would send letters to the media, <laughs> you know. And so they do need it and and, and they need that the gratification they get from people writing to them. You know, I've, I've had killers say to me, you know, oh, I've got a new pen pal, you know, who are you and what are, are you going to do for me? And I turn, turn the tables and so they're often intrigued because I won't play their games. Mm. But it's it's something that they need and they love getting the attention and it's just something that it won't compel someone to kill that wasn't going to kill. But someone who has that inclination, knowing that they're going to be famous by doing so, can be that final straw that pushes them over the edge. It's very, very interesting, Michelle. I hope that's answered your question. Uh, Amanda, we will take a quick break and then we're going to come back with a very interesting psychological profile and that's what we do, which I feel is a little bit different. But if you've got a question, go to facebook.com slash mwmconfessions. Talk to us there. Amanda's very active on the Facebook page, more so than me, but she will answer questions. We may even put it here on the podcast. Uh, So go to facebook.com slash mwmconfessions. Meanwhile, coming up, our psychological profile on the Unibomber, Ted Kaczynski. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
too many channels, too much choice. What the hell should I watch? They are the daily cries from living rooms all around the country, but fret not Australia, we're here to help. Join me, Dan Bennett, plus Steve Monkey-Malk, Stephen Brookie-Brook, and the always fabulous Joe Casamento as we slice, dice, and dissect the best and worst of what's on the box in our brand new podcast, TV Binge Box. And we want you to be a part of the show too. Find out just how to do that and get our thoughts on what's making the small screen sizzle in our very first episode live in your podcast feed of choice on Thursday, March 19. Spin-offs can totally work. Trust me, I'm a writer. I didn't get to sing McKnight tonight. <laughs> I thought I'd give the listeners a break from McKnight tonight. That is the uh, that's a spin-off podcast we're doing from TV Black Box uh, that will look at the big TV shows of the week. So even international viewers might enjoy that one because um, I know that the TV Black Box is very Australian focused. But with television uh, and watching television, obviously we're all watching the streamers like Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime Video now, and that's all around the world and all the shows coming out are being released everywhere. So I think that'll be a good resource for people and uh, an alternative way of just listening to what's going on as far as the viewing of television goes. So, yeah, that's TV Binge Box if you search for it in your podcast feed, Amanda. I think it'll be a good one. Yeah, sounds good. All right, let's move on to our psychological profile. And this week we are looking at a serial killer with one of the highest IQs. Ted Kaczynski is the killer more commonly known as the Unabomber. He murdered three people and injured another 23 by conducting a nationwide bombing campaign sent via packages which were sometimes hand-delivered by Kaczynski himself. Amanda, you're excited to be talking about a killer with such intelligence. Why is that? Um, Well, Ted Kaczynski had a documented IQ of 167 when he was in the fifth grade. So, I mean, this is someone who is off the charts intelligent and he was able to do what he did for more than 20 years and was one of the country's most wanted killers. You know, he started in 1978 and it's just amazing to see how his mind works and, and, and his reasoning behind this. You know, we're not talking about our typical sexual serial killer. This is a bomber. This is a terrorist. Mm. And just the way that he figures that this is his response to society it's just I just find it so fascinating but when we talk to evading capture we've also got the Green River killer Gary Ridgway he evaded capture for just about as long without having a high IQ so evading capture didn't come down to just a high IQ right no, no. I mean, Ridgeway's IQ was 81, and I was really disappointed. I must admit, when we did that um, that episode, purely because I thought he was cleverer that than he was, and he was really, really dumb. <laughs> Maybe he just didn't um, take tests very well. <laughs> I don't know, but basically, he was allowed. He was able to elude capture purely because he was just dumping his his victims, whereas Kaczynski is torn to the police. You know, we've seen at crime scenes, you know, they're extremely brazen and he was never even a suspect, unlike Ridgway, who was actually being watched from early on, but it took DNA to be advanced Mm. enough to be able to take him down, whereas Kaczynski was totally off the grid. No one had Mm. any idea that he was the killer. Well, let's listen to the FBI's doco on how they captured Kaczynski. On April 3, 1996, Kaczynski was captured shortly after opening his door. One of the agents who was there uh, pulled Kaczynski out and there was a struggle. He was uh, handcuffed and he was walked away from his cabin and that was the last time he saw it. Then the feeling was just, it was just incredible and I was standing next to a number of other people in the, for, in the command post, uh, the rear command post. and. 
uh, all of us, we, we looked at each other and, and we almost couldn't talk. We were so overcome with the idea that we now have safely got this person in our custody. But Kaczynski left a hidden surprise back at the cabin. We found a live bomb under Theodore Kaczynski's bed. Uh, okay, they found a live bomb. What happened with the bomb? Oh, they they had the bomb squad there. They knew that they were after Ted Kaczynski. They, and they, they knew, knew that, that could be there. an issue. Oh, yes. They expected <laughs> right. booby traps and everything. They didn't just walk up and knock on the front door. It took them quite a while to get from the roadside to his cabin. Yeah. Okay, so how was Kaczynski finally identified as the Unabomber? Well, as as I said, no one had any idea that he was the killer. Um, but it actually was his younger brother who brought him him to justice, which is which is sad. But we will get to that, I promise. Okay. And what does the name Unabomber actually mean? Where where does that come from? And I've got to tell you, <laughs> this is going to make me sound really stupid. <laughs> I thought it was Unibomber, as in U N I, not U N A. I don't know why I thought that. I I but. I actually did. So what does Unabomber actually mean? Many people actually thought that, and even for a long time, when you go through the press articles, there are some that actually do oh. say UNI. So because he was attacking universities, so people saw Unibomber, but it it, it was um, actually a task force. It was called Unibomb, and it was um, Unibomb was an anagram for university and airline bombings. So that's oh, how it okay. was because he... He targeted both. So, yes, uni, bombing, it does come up a lot. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. You've already mentioned that Kaczynski was bright from a very young age. How did that affect him? Well, I mean, for someone who was a bit socially awkward, um, he actually skipped grades twice. So he was two years younger that, than his fellow students. And so it really made it hard for him to make friends because everyone, you know, that, that they were going through puberty and he wasn't yet and he was already small for his age. So this sort of made it even worse. And, you know, he, he actually found it quite difficult to deal with the social constructs of, of school and he actually... Um, was extremely shy of girls and he wasn't friendly with people and he sort of started to resent society as a whole. And when he went to Harvard as a young boy, um, it was even worse. You know, it, it, it just sort of catapulted him in, into this adult world when he was so young and it made him a hermit even when he was going to university. Now, from his cabin in Montana, he began a 17-year murderous campaign against the rest of society, simplistically put, to wake it up from its reliance on technology. Let's hear how people in the town where he was captured described one of America's most wanted men. This from ABC News. He was just a real quiet guy. Um, you know, he came to town, he never bothered anybody, he never gave anybody a hard time, he was never in trouble, um, never was at the bars, um, just a real quiet guy. And, um, you know, if you had a conversation, it was a real intelligent conversation with him. You know, he's just just not the guy that I would think would be the Unabomber. Reclusive, hermit type, you know. Uh, he didn't go out of his way to make friends or anything like that, you know. He wasn't a, what you would call a social person. You know, I mean, he didn't read like the normal junk the rest of us read. He, he had to order in the books? Oh, yeah. Most generally, you had to order anything in for him because what he wanted was so off the wall. And a lot of stuff he wanted was out of print for years. You know, he just, he's very, very well-read man, very educated man. He was a quiet guy. This is what we hear a lot about serial killers. 
Yeah, I mean, this is what we were just talking about. You know, mm. the attractive people aren't going to be serial killers. You know, but he, we have a man who isn't a monster. You know, he's he's not like a, the survivalist, like like an Eng that we did in an episode. You know, there's no sexual crimes here. This is about one man's terrorist attack on his own country. He's he's there to say the way we rely on technology, the way that it rules our lives isn't the way that life should be. And I would love to get his his perspective on now, you know, mm. because, you know, with Facebook and all of this sort of stuff, I, I, I would love to hear that. But here is a man who is just this quiet guy who can you please order and these books at the local library that no one had any idea that this is what was feeding his his terrorist desires. So what exactly was his motive? Well, thankfully, Kaczynski actually kept a journal. So everything he did, we know that there was exact reasons for the campaign. And he actually wrote, and this is a quote from one of his journals, I emphasise that my motivation is personal revenge. I don't pretend any kind of philosophical or moralistic justification. My ambition is to kill a scientist, big businessman, government official or the like. I would also like to kill a communist. I mean, it's pretty straight there that this is what he wants to do he, he wants to kill people that represent different parts of society that are in power and he wants to take down that power to cause fear to make people you know to, to make the people take control well that's a very specific kill list if he wanted to kill specific people do you find it interesting that his method of killing was bombing doesn't that seem like a strange choice yeah, it is. I mean, because bombings can have mass casualties and it's not always the person that the bomb is targeted against will get that bomb. I mean, with these cases, there was, um, you know, a security guard that opened one and a secretary opened a different one, you know, but he was actually targeting not just those in individuals but what they stood for. So, you know, sending it to a university, regardless of who got it, it was going to cause fear that there was a terrorist attack on a university. You know, he was after big corporations he was after the universities he was after the airlines these places that he didn't feel like he fit I mean the university he went to Harvard he was brilliant but he wasn't Harvard material so his first bomb was sent on May 26 1978 what happened well interestingly rather than send it to someone it was actually addressed as return to sender so it was to a guy called Buckley Christ um, and he was a professor of engineering at the University of Illinois in Chicago now the professor had not sent an uh, a parcel to anyone so when security called him to say look there's a parcel here he sort of said to them I'm not expecting something so instantly there was a bit of a okay what's going on here oh, okay. and the security guy took it out into to the car park and it did explode um, the oh, wow. Officer, yeah, the officer was injured, but no one was actually killed, purely because this um, professor said, I didn't send a parcel, so I don't know why I'm getting one back. How um, did he detonate these bombs? Was he in proximity? Did it? Were they on timers? No, that these are old, old school bombs. So, you know, it's not like he sent them from Montana and they have a six-week period before they get there. These were delivered basically to front counters. They were posted from the post office there. So they, that they would get there within 24 hours and they would have a timer. 
Oh, OK. In yeah. September 1995, the Washington Post published the Unabomber's manifesto titled Industrial Society and Its Future. It's a huge 37,000-word document written by Kaczynski. And, Amanda, you've read the entire document. Good on you. <laughs> what was your first impression? Uh, well, actually, I'd put it off for a few days because I really thought that this is going to be some dry, hardcore rhetoric that I'm just going to have to deal with, you know, the doodlings of a madman. But um, it's actually an extremely interesting piece of writing. You know, there's all Orwellian prospects in this of a society that's run by those in, in control. You know, he he talks about that we rely heavy, heavily on machines and um, computers and industry and everything and that they're actually controlling us rather than us controlling them, you know. And he discusses that the quality of life is suffering quite horrendously because of our reliance on machines. Well, you've selected a few pieces of the manifesto for us to break down, so let's get into that. Sections three and four from the introduction. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. The revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that. But we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. What did you spot in there? Well, the use of the collective noun we, mm. he says we, he's not saying I. I, I, I saw that you spotted it too. You know, he's actually claiming to be advocating for larger organisations. So he's saying that this is being written by a corporation. It, it's a collective we as in society as a whole, or is it about a group that wants to take over that they're radicals, you know. Is, yeah, he was is, a loner. He didn't doing? have a group ready to no. go, right? So no. he's speaking on behalf of a group of people, but really he's speaking on behalf of himself. He's just using the royal we. Exactly. And is that to say that uh, there's more of a self-importance, that he's saying that he needs to lead this? You know, Charles Manson did a very similar thing, you know, that, that we the people kind of thing, but it's about helter-skelter. Here he's saying about that the decay of society because of technology, you know, and, and the we actually continues right the way throughout uh, the document. So for someone who is extremely isolated and devoid of human human interaction and and relationships, I find it hard to believe that he would say we because he's not a people. He's an individual. So his rhetoric actually belies his own personality. Huh. You know, he's, he's, he's saying um, we, it becomes more prevalent uh, the further we go into this document and he starts speaking as a collective group and it may be that he's doing this as part of the threat. So if someone thinks it's a crazy guy in a cabin, is that going to get the same answers as a corporation's manifesto to the people saying mm. we must rise and take over? You know, basically this was saying print our manifesto or people will die. But if they thought it was a crazy man in a cabin, they would have ignored it. Yes. But because we have this we and this collective noun throughout it, it becomes important that 
he is speaking for other people even though he is devoid of that human interaction. Very, very interesting. Well, he goes further with his manifesto discussing leftism and the subculture it has created with what is often now referred to as political correctness gone wild. This is from the section Feelings of Inferiority, point 11 and 12. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, Handicapped or Chick for an African an Asian, a disabled person or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude or fellow. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. Leftish anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the word primitive by non-literate. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that the primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftish anthropologists. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper middle class families. Amanda, this is a powder keg of a topic, and we have to remember here, this is from the mid-1990s, and we've gone even further into this political correctness terminology since then. Yeah, I know. I would really, really love to get his take on what it's like now. I have written to him multiple times, but he's never written back. I think I have to try again. But, um, I mean... This actually makes sense. Yes, there's a bit of white privilege there that, you know, he's saying that we shouldn't use the words Negro, um, but they don't have negative connotations, but they actually do and all of that. But the point he's making here is that the people that are causing the issues are not these minority groups, but the people that are trying to represent them, and they aren't parts of these minority groups. And so they're actually doing more of a disservice to these people than they are helping them and he actually goes further in, in, into this section about black lives and he talks about even back then before all of these hashtags and everything that we have in, in this decade, he talks about how the uprising and things like the LA riots and things like that only happened because of what white people have done and said and created this sort of minority group we're telling these minority groups that they are not important and so by singling singling them out for these sorts of things we're actually creating that chasm between us that that we're creating this issue of us and them and rather than saying let these people speak for themselves the white people are speaking for the minority groups and it's not helping. It's interesting his points about political correctness. Um, just the other day I was listening to the Carrie and Tommy radio show. It's an afternoon radio show here in Australia. And 
their producer or the third person with them was doing an Irish accent. It was funny, you know, it was all good yeah. radio. Tommy turned around to him and said, now do an Indian one. And, of course, he didn't because that would have gone to the point where it's deemed racist to do an Indian accent, but doing the Irish accent was perfectly acceptable. So there have become connotations around certain things based on the treatment of people over the years. So he's writing the fact that Negro was once not a negative connotation, but it became a negative connotation because of the way the people were treated and it was used as a way to put people down as well. So mm-hmm. at one point he's right. Yeah, It wasn't. But it, it, but he would have to accept that it did, and he's been wanting for many years to do interviews. So um, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear. It would be interesting to hear where his thinking has gone between yeah. what he said then and what he believes now. Yeah. But when you go back and look at that, he's blaming university professors a lot. It sounds like this is his motive for those he targeted. Yeah, I mean, this is basically what we now call white privilege. And he's saying that the middle-aged white man has the control that they don't actually deserve. And so this is why him, as a middle-aged white man, was attacking himself, basically, you know, because he was everything he hated. So there's that involved here too. Now, Kaczynski moves on to a section about the surrogate activities That is the pursuit of interests beyond the biological necessities or the need to work to meet financial needs. He defines these as surrogate activities. He writes in section 39, For most, if not most people, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals, that is, goals that people would want to attain even if their need for the power process were already fulfilled. One indication of this is the fact that in many or most cases, people who are deeply involved in surrogate activities are never satisfied, never at rest. Thus, the moneymaker constantly strives for more and more wealth. The scientist no sooner solves one problem than he moves on to the next. The long-distance runner drives himself to run always farther and faster. Many people who pursue surrogate activities will say that they get far more fulfilment from these activities than they do from the mundane business of satisfying their biological needs. But that is because in our society, the effort needed to satisfy the biological needs has been reduced to triviality. More importantly, in our society, people do not satisfy their biological needs autonomously, but by functioning as parts of an immense social machine. In contrast, people generally have a great deal of autonomy in pursuing their surrogate activities. Now, this section goes on for many points before and after this point, but why is this important? Well, it's about the autonomy um, that one has when they're pursuing activities. You know, this is really important and I think this is this spoke volumes to me. This I read about 400 times and I will read it again the rest of my life. I think it's important because I um, I don't know. It just it just spoke to me. I, I think I drank the Kool-Aid. Flavor-Aid. Um, Flavor-Aid. Uh, <laughs> this is important in that we need to get up and we go to work, to, you know, to eat, to sleep, to do those things that allow us to live the lives that we have. You know, but many of us pursue these surrogate activities for many reasons. You know, mostly it's about our autonomy and that it's important to us you know like we do this podcast because we want to it's not because we need to and if we stopped we could stop you know but and but we don't answer to anyone we do it the way we want to do it 
you and I discuss it, we yell and scream about it, we love each other, you know, but we do it the way that we want to and we decide what sound bites to use, we decide what pieces mm. to write about. We we do this and it's, you know, it's very different to our daily lives. Well, know? I'm turning this into my daily life, but, you <laughs> know, but I understand what he means. You know, uh, when you build one success, you then turn your attentions to another one. Uh, we've just mm-hmm. heard today I'm launching another podcast, you know, and I've got a plan for a video um, podcast coming up in the future. So, you know, like we do never want to stop. Yeah, I haven't talked to you about that yet. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, the, some of what he's saying actually makes sense. It's just that extreme he takes it to where he says that's a bad thing. You know, if these surrogate activities to me don't seem like a bad thing if people are trying to achieve. What is so wrong no, with that? Not, Why does well, he see that not. as a bad thing? No, he's 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 not. He's saying that that these 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 extra goals, these surrogate goals, are what make some people successful. You know, I sit day in day out in a windowless office by myself, doing the most boring ass job there is in the possible world. <laughs> you know, but I have my podcasts, I have my books. I you know I'm doing the the big data project on on serial killers. I'm doing what I love and. That makes me get up and do the boring stuff because I have these surrogate activities. You know, I thought one time, you know, 30 years ago, I thought I might write one book. I'm about to publish 27, 28 and 29 now. You know, it's just it's just this is what happens. And, you know, I would feel deprived if I didn't have these goals, you know, and this is what Kaczynski is getting at. He says that it's an artificial goal and, you know, I get enjoyment out of that, but I don't need it to be fulfilled. So... Why do I continue to pursue this? And he says because we, we, there's people that have this desire to continue and to continue, and we find it fulfilling even though it doesn't meet any of our innate demands. Mm. Well, another 50 pages of his manifesto continued to highlight how modern technology has helped defeat the improvement of humankind through overcrowding, noise, pollution, etc. It thrust us into changes that should have taken centuries and modern society has failed to keep up and shouldn't keep up with technology. Why did he write this? Well, the reason's actually twofold. You know, it, it's part of his assault on Western society through, through his acts of terrorism. So we have that part of it. But it's also a wake-up call that we're actually doomed if we don't change. You know, we we have said, like the, the world has said over and over again, that the technological advances that we've had over the last century is nothing, you know, it is massive compared to what we've done. You know, we took thousands and millions of years to evolve and then we've done so much in such a short time that we're actually not biologically ready for what we can actually do now. And so he is concerned that our intelligence is is going to disappear because we are reliant. I mean, I sit here at night and I ask Google to do maths for me while I'm trying to work out this this killer was this age at this time and so this was their date of mm. birth. You know, I do all of this and I just get Google to do it for me. I, I could easily do it in my brain, you know, and I, I don't I want to get political and, and love to know what Kaczynski's take is on, on Trump. Um, but I do know that he was a supporter of the Clintons and Obama, so I can only imagine. But he is trying to tell us that um, it is a concise edict on where we find ourselves today. We are so reliant that they're going to take over and we're going to be left behind. It's interesting. If he wasn't a um, killer, he actually could have sold these theories and developed a following because 
there is some interesting stuff here that I think people would be drawn to. You know, people today are talking about the overuse of technology. You were just talking about it then. So he could have actually gone down a different path and been um, quite famous as a person of ideas, but he went down a very different route. He was actually a published author before he, he started the terrorist attacks. So mm. um, you can actually even go to his Wikipedia page and, and, and down the bottom is his bibliography and he's written many papers. Right. And I, I read about two or three of them. They are a bit above me. But, um, <laughs> That's saying something. They're, they're, they're quite fascinating and they're... they're they're out of date now, but you can see where he was going and to sort of transpose those into the 21st century, I think it would be amazing and he would be up there, you know, inside of that Greta Thunberg or whatever her n- name is. He would have been a spokesman for, you know, anonymous, you know, Julian Assange, all of that sort of stuff. That's where he could have gone had he not gone down this terrorist mm. attack. Why did newspapers actually publish his manifesto? Isn't that yielding to a terrorist threat? Absolutely, you know, and and we know that Americans do not um, negotiate with terrorists. Absolutely, absolutely, and but they believed that the threats were real, and they needed to prevent these bombings. And the we in in his discussions sort of made them think that this is just the beginning and they went for 17 years. They mm. thought that maybe if they didn't, they're going to start happening all over the country. But at the same time, the FBI said, well, if we publish this, someone might recognise the writing. Someone might say, gee, that sounds like such and such who rants like this because literally this is, you know, an 86-page rant. And it did just that, Amanda. Let's have a listen to this clip from ABC News that explains how Kaczynski was identified as the Unabomber. It really was a phone tip that a lawyer for the Kaczynski family called in, a tip that ironically was almost ignored and almost put in sort of not the A file but the B file. But one agent here in San Francisco took the time and began to work it. The problem was that they had thought all along the suspect was somebody who lived in the San Francisco area. And when it first came in as somebody in Montana, it was ignored. But as they looked closer and closer at this man, they found he began to fit the profile, in particular the fact that he in the mid-80s worked in the Salt Lake City area as a construction worker, an area where one bomb was mailed and another bomb went off. This is always the problem, isn't it, when you have the conclusion before you've actually investigated the case. You assumed he was from one area, so you almost discounted the evidence from another area. Um, This is very frustrating, and we've seen this happen in a lot of the cold cases we've covered, um, where a suspect has literally been named, but the tip but the tip-off is ignored as irrelevant. Absolutely, you know, and, and and we do do our cold cases. You know, people have rung through a tip and heard not, nothing more, so they think, oh well, it obviously meant nothing. Mm. I was obviously wrong, and they m- move on. And then it takes a new set of eyes that goes, hang on a sec, how about this piece of info? Why didn't someone follow this up, or why was this put in this file instead of that file? You know, and literally the FBI agent just said that it, it, it was put in folder B instead of folder A purely because of of the location, and it's frustrating that. People are giving the police the answers, mm. but they have, you know, put a, a square peg in a square hole and they don't want to hear anything else about it. So exactly how did Kaczynski's brother recognise the writings as Ted's? Let's have a listen to David Kaczynski explaining his story on The Dr Oz Show. At what point did you realise, oh, my goodness, that's my older brother Ted? 
at first I was very dismissive. I didn't think it was possible. Ted had never been violent. And um, I think it, it, more than anything, it was just a sense of the voice is the same, but I still didn't know, am I projecting this fear or am I in denial? Um, there was one phrase that sort of jumped out at me. I remembered it from one of Ted's letters where he talked about modern philosophers as not quite qualifying as what he termed cool-headed logicians. And that phrase seemed unusual. It is unusual. And uh, I thought, well, gee, if it's in one of his letters and it's in this manifesto, maybe, maybe it could be my brother. Now, look, the quote he's referring to is this one from Point 18. Modern leftish philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analysing the foundations of knowledge. Now, Amanda, two words in a 35,000-word document. No doubt other phrases must have stood out to David. Yeah, there was, but it was the cool-headed logicians that that was the crux of it for him. It's very um, unique. There was a couple, it is, it is, and and for someone to use such a term and then to see it. Now, this was actually sent into the newspapers on a typewritten document, so it wasn't printed out, it wasn't done on computer or anything like that, and so this was something that was um, edited and fixed and correct. Um, and, and corrected over and over again. And uh, Kaczynski actually sent his brother things like this, often in the post. He, he would send it to his whole family, basically saying you're all a bunch of idiots because <laughs> this is what society's doing and we're ignoring the warning signs. And so this is why he knew that this was a term that Ted had used. And so David had to say, you know, is it coincidence or is my brother the 17-year career Unabomber. Mm. Well, David explains in that episode of Dr Oz how hard the decision was to report his brother as possibly being the Unabomber after talking to his mother. So your mother had charged you with not abandoning your brother. Sure. And you have to go tell her that you're worried he's the Unabomber and that you've turned him in. Right. How did that conversation go? Oh, I was terrified. Actually, uh, you know, I tried to sort of ease into it, but Mom was very bright, and I had to say, Mom, I think Ted might possibly be involved in these bombings. She walked up with, to me without saying a word, and she put her arms up around my neck. She pulled me down. She put a kiss on my cheek, and she said, David, I can't imagine what you've been struggling with. Oh, my goodness. And then she said what I really, really needed to hear from her. She said, David, I know that you love Ted. I know that you wouldn't have done this unless you truly felt that you had to. What must that be like? I, I don't think you could ever imagine. I think it's something that there is, you know, something where blood is thicker than water and, and we do want to believe the best in our families and, you know, we're seeing it now with DNA, with them doing it through the genealogy groups, how people are putting in, in blood samples and they're finding that Uncle Arthur was, you know, a serial killer back in 1942. And so we're starting to realise that sometimes we want to see beyond and sometimes it's really hard to, I mean, you can go to, you know, K 
Cain and Abel, you know, the first killing ever in, in, in the Bible where, you know, one has to die to save the other. And this is basically what David had to do. David had to um, put his brother forward knowing that he could get the death penalty. Mm. Just, you know, but he had to do that, like, to save everyone else. Well, finally, they're sure it's Kaczynski and they go to his cabin in the woods. This is how FBI agent Terry Turchi described Kaczynski on first seeing the man who had gone off the grid in his Montana cabin. When I first laid eyes on Theodore Kaczynski, I had severely mixed emotions. On the one hand, he was almost timid, and yet he was very, very calm. So there was that image combined with, however, the disheveled look, the, the, the scraggly beard, the matted down hair that was going in 20 different directions. The eyes, his eyes were unlike any eyes I'd ever seen before. And even looking into those eyes, it was almost as if they were without emotion. Amanda, we have just spoken in this very episode about how you cannot judge people by their looks. And you certainly can't pick a serial killer just by looking at him. But this agent seems to be doing just that. Yeah, I mean, but he's not really picking him out from his appearance. I mean, there's means of people in this world that look dishevelled and are crazy and they aren't killers, you know. But what is significant here is that Kaczynski has been captured by a large team of FBI agents. Yeah, he's got he's context. Calm. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got he, context he of going there. in and knowing that this is a serial killer. And they also know that that door could open and they all explode. So, again, like I, I said about, you know, the burglar coming in, into the criminology classroom, they're expecting the monster. They're expecting the eight-foot-tall giant of a man who's, who's made a whole country fear his terrorist attacks. And it's this dishevelled old-looking man with hair going everywhere. But he is calm. You know, there is no panic. There is no fight or flight. Kaczynski isn't looking for an escape. You know, he's not worried about what's going to happen. He's, he's just there but he's not there, you know, and this is the issue. This means nothing to him. He's almost like he's doing a, la- a live compartmentalisation of what's going on. He's under extreme stress, obviously, but he also knows, push comes to shove, there's a bomb in there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let's listen to the final part of this saga as captured by news agency AP. First, we hear from federal prosecutor Robert Cleary. The Department of Justice has just accept- accepted a plea of guilty for life in prison without the possibility of parole from Theodore Kaczynski. The Unabomber's career is over. Cleary then read out a statement from Kaczynski's brother. Speaking for my mother Wanda, my wife Linda back in Schenectady, and other close family members, I would like to say that our reaction to to today's plea agreement is one of deep relief. We We feel it is the appropriate just and civilized resolution to this tragedy in light of Ted's diagnosed mental illness. Now, Amanda, Kaczynski's brother David was standing there with his diminutive mother. She didn't even reach his shoulder. Interesting that the final words that they put in that statement was basically to reiterate that Ted was mentally ill. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, and and though we know mental health is a topic that, you know, I'm quite passionate about, but it it just it's kind of allows the families to take that step away from the killers and their families saying they're mentally ill, I'm okay, you know, and that's a step that that I I talk about a lot. You know, it gives them a reason and it allows allows them to say, 
you know, I don't suffer from what he's suffered from, so I'm not going to become the next Unabomber because my brother did. Uh, families always need to have a reason to say they're different from us, and so this is what they've done there. You know, it comes back to the born or bred sort of philosophical argument of, you know, did he become the Unabomber because of the way he was raised or was he going to become the Unabomber regardless? Mm. And by them saying, well, he's mentally ill, it sort of says, well, it, it, it sort of happened because of other issues he was having and they can absolve themselves of any But don't they need to? Knowing that you, you know, lived with someone, brought up someone who's killed people and, and was this horrible person... I can't blame them for yeah, but, needing but to the, go down that path. Yeah, but at the same time, for every Ted Kaczynski, there's a thousand people out there with mental illness that do good every day. You of know? course, understand you know, completely. And, and this is and and this is what happens is that we use mental illness at times as a reason to blame people for bad decisions, mm-hmm. rather than saying. They have mental illness and they still made bad decisions. It shouldn't be part and parcel. It's not because of the mental illness that they made these bad decisions, but it didn't help. Mm. But at the same time, we always remember that there's people with mental health issues that, you know, get up every day and don't kill people. Well, Ted Kaczynski took a plea bargain. He pleaded guilty to 10 counts of transporting explosive devices with the intent to kill or maim and three murders. I guess this was to take the death penalty off the table? Well, actually, first they tried to do the insanity plea. So this is where the Mm. mental health did come in um, to get the death penalty off the table. But Kaczynski actually refused to do it. And and so he um, sacked his entire team and he wanted to bring in an anti-technology plea. So he wants to say that, um, you know, it was like he was going to work and he again failed and, you know, he actually attempted suicide when all all of this went down. Um, But it was finally through his hearings about his mental competence that um he decided to go ahead with a full trial and plead not guilty so the death penalty was actually on on the table but as we heard at the 11th hour he pleaded guilty to all charges and so the death penalty was then taken off the table um but he didn't want to plead guilty he just wanted to appeal it but the appeal was denied Right. So went around and around. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Ted Kaczynski remains in prison, serving his eight life sentences in the Florence Supermax prison in Colorado. He is currently 77 years old. Amanda Howard, I've really enjoyed getting to know this case. It's a, it's a, it's a killer I've known about but haven't really had the details about, and this has been quite fascinating. Thank you for your insight. Thank you. And we'll have another edition of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions next week. Don't forget to go to our Patreon page at MWM Confessions and see what tier could suit you, and that will certainly help the podcast. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.